Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Airbnb says it wants government reform so it can ban non-registered properties from its website. We discuss the startup's place in a frenetic rental market. It comes as a Lonely Planet travel magazine casts an eye over our capital city. The results are not pretty. Covid cases are rising once again and there are hints from government about a return to mask wearing in some settings. We'll discuss whether that's on the cards with our panel. And later, I speak to renowned Irish journalist who has spent the last number of years in some of the world's most dangerous places, reporting at the forefront of the migrant crisis. Do get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. We begin tonight in South Tipperary, where the bodies of a man and a woman have been discovered in a house. Gardy were called to the property in Clonine earlier this afternoon. It's understood the elderly couple may have been there for some time. Gardy in Clamel have launched an investigation. We will have more on this story as we get it. Now, to some, it is a startup company that has revolutionised the way we travel around the globe. To others, it is a symptom of a renting crisis engulfing our country. Airbnb is now asking the government for reforms so it can ban non-registered companies from using its website. The company has long been criticised for taking homes out of the rental market. Here's an example. According to the Irish Independent on Sunday, there were 864 short-term properties on Airbnb for Dublin, compared to 315 longer-term rentals on daft.ie. Well, there are regulations in place at the moment, but Airbnb says they aren't working and that a new register could help clamp down on those dodging the law. Well, to discuss this further this evening, I'm joined by Christina Finn, political correspondent at thejournal.ie, Paul McAuliffe, TD from Fianna Foyle, Potter Tabin, leader of Into, and Adrian Weckler, tech editor at Independent. .ie. You're all very welcome to the programme. And I want to start with you, Adrian, because uh, this story was off the back of your own interview uh, today with Amanda Couples, who is a general manager uh, within Airbnb. Um, before we get to, I suppose, what she said and what she was proposing, what exactly are the rules in existence at the moment? The rules essentially are, from, t- from 2019, rules were introduced that limited you if you wanted to rent out your apartment or your house on Airbnb you could only do so for 90 days in any one calendar year or for 14 days, maximum 14 days at any one time, unless you applied for planning permission for a change of use of your property. Now, there's 
a lot of anecdotal evidence that that is not being observed. We've, we saw Sinn Féin a couple of weeks ago introduce a private member's bill to suggest that it should be on platforms such as Airbnb or others to deny hosts or landlords who are introducing, uh, who are trying to advertise those properties. What Airbnb is now saying is it wants the government to set up what it calls a national host register. It says it works in countries like France and Holland and Portugal. And by doing so, if you were renting out your property, you would get a registration number. You would have to quote that number when you advertised your property on Airbnb. And if you didn't, Airbnb wouldn't let you advertise your property. So in a sense, they're putting it back on the government. Mm. But in another sense, they're also saying that this works in other countries. And why um, doesn't the regulation currently seem to work in this country? Why does there seem to be sort of a lot of flouting of this particular regulation? There doesn't seem to be an awful lot of enforcement. That takes resources to do that. And who's uh, responsible for that enforcement as it stands? That's a variety of it. That's the local council. That's, I mean, it, so, so it's spread over uh, a couple of different authorities. But essentially... You know, most of us know someone who has at one point rented out, you know, a property and has tried to take cash for it. Um, and there is a widespread feeling that enforcement in this area isn't very strong in Ireland. And just to be clear, Christine, I think when Airbnb started out initially, it was meant to be a room sharing platform. If you had a room in your house that was going spare, you know, you could put it up on Airbnb for a couple of nights and perhaps make a bit of money. It's grown way beyond that now, hasn't it? Yeah, it's huge worldwide. And I think um, the Irish government have really been playing catch up with this. Um, I know Owen Murphy, when he was housing minister, and Shane Ross, they were in two separate departments in housing and tourism. And there was a bit of a, a disagreement about how they would go about regulating Airbnb. Time has moved on since then. I know Daryl Bryan, the housing minister, um, has been in talks with Airbnb about finally getting a hold on this uh, situation. Because as we've seen time and time again, these articles of comparisons between Airbnb short-term lets in comparison to what is just a very a small pool of uh, rental properties for um, everybody else who is just in a huge competition to find somewhere to live. So it really is, I think, a thorn that needs to be grasped now by the government and to finally get some sort of regulation. It does come down to, as Adrian said, enforcement. There's been numerous reports about local authorities not being given the adequate resources to um, follow up on the, uh, the planning permissions and the licensing system. So I, I do think a lot more has to be done in, in the next couple of months um, from the housing minister to really get a hold on this and to get those properties back into the mix for, for people that really need them. And just to be clear, we did ask uh, Airbnb to come on the programme this evening or to put somebody forward and nobody was available. But in terms of the figures, and we quoted some of the figures there in the Irish Independent, I think Airbnb do dispute those figures at times, don't they? They say, look at all of the properties that are available on our websites. Some of them are, you know, a room within somebody's home. Uh, it might be a short-term lent. It might be a barn, a yurt. It might be something that is suitable as a long-term let. Yeah, there's definitely, obviously, you know, different sort of properties, as you mentioned, rooms, yurts, glamping, all the rest. But, you know... The figures are still pretty stark, even if you take away a certain percentage to account for that. It still seems to be way above what is just on the normal rental market. Can I just say that I did put that to Airbnb in relation to the figures, because the figures that you used were the figures that, that kind of I unearthed. What they said to me it was that typically an entire apartment or an entire home 
will only be rent typically a few days out of a month. They make the example of somebody who is uh, going abroad for work and they will rent out their apartment for, say, you know, a weekend while they're away. They don't give an exact breakdown, but they do dispute that you can compare exactly those two set of figures. All right. Uh, Pater, do you take issue with Airbnb? I do. I think this is absolutely outrageous. There are 15,000 Airbnb rentals uh, online, while there's 850 long-term rentals for families. We have to get okay, to... And just because you know, we've just made that yeah. point, that they do dispute whether okay, there was 15,000 sure. are long-term rentals. But, but to, listen, when COVID hit in March and April in 2020... 900 homes came on the market straight away. There was an increase in 40% of the number of homes because it was no longer feasible for these Airbnbs to function. So straight away... But only we, 900 out of those 15,000 came on. 900 houses came on, but there's only 850 houses in total in the whole state for rent at the moment. So, so how do you propose dealing with this? So first of all, it, the responsibility on an off-licence is to make sure... It abides by the law. It gets in trouble if it breaks the law. So the fact that Airbnb is, 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 is saying, you know, they're not abiding by the law, but there's no penalty to them. If you ever want to make sure that a law has been abided by, make sure that the person who's making the profit is forced to adhere to the law. To be honest, AIM2 brought about a bill two years ago, which actually would ban Airbnb in towns and cities above 10,000 uh, people for a period of three years because of the housing crisis. Ban outright. Just for a period of three years. Right now we have this ludicrous situation where, okay. where, where tourists are staying in homes and we have uh, like families staying in hotels. It's absolutely unforgivable. And just to be clear, um, towns and cities over 10,000, because I just had a look, that's Dublin, Cork, Limerick, Galway, Waterford, we all would know those. But you're also talking about towns like Ennis, Tralee, Castlebar, Letterkenny, Athlone, Killarney, Greystones, Cavan, Wexford, Kilkenny, and your own in Navantown. Are you yes. saying all of those towns have a rental crisis? I am saying in a housing crisis such as we're in at the moment, in, in Kerry, there are 50 homes uh, currently uh, uh, for rent, while there are about six times that amount uh, on Airbnb. We have to... Listen, just, just very clearly, yeah, just because I do there, want to there will be people within your constituency, uh, people in Navan this evening, yeah. who perhaps rent out a room sure. or rent out um, perhaps a holiday home that they don't use year-round on Airbnb. And in the middle of a cost of living crisis, you're saying ban that outright. No, Just to be clear now, our, our, our legislation makes uh, ability for if it's over 28 days in a, in a particular year. So it's not an if, outright ban. It, but it's an outright, outright ban for 90% of those rentals that happen, which are, right. are, are the 14 days. But just one final point on it. We have to get to a situation where a house is a home for a family, not a speculation, not an investment and not a okay. holiday home. Uh, Paul, is there an issue with um, Airbnb? What is the problem with, with Potter's um, legislation? There absolutely is an issue, and Christine says that governments have been playing catch-up. I, I would have said that the previous government took insufficient action on Airbnb, uh, and I want to see uh, the current government go m- much further. I think in many ways the uh, the platform has taken a preemptive strike here where we're, they're calling for a register. I believe government will go much further than a register, um, and uh, I, I think that's important. Look, How, well, how far is, is the government uh, willing to go on this? What exactly are you talking well, about? Do, what I measures? Do, do. And when? Yeah. When will you introduce no, them? But I think the legislation that Dara O'Brien was talking about is 2023, so it's not for another year at least. Yeah, and it, it may be 2023 until it comes into force and it takes some time to have the legislative process. But let's, let's be careful. It's important that whatever we do is balanced, OK? We're very conscious at the moment of the cost, both for tourism and for Irish people who are, who are, who are holidaying here in, in Ireland. So we have to be careful what we do. But we also have to make sure that... 
the, the housing issue is the number one priority for, for the government. And, and in my view, uh, the best way to do that is to take very substantial action on public housing, on public land. We're doing yes. that. OK, but, but let's the, just focus, I suppose, on this but, but uh, Airbnb on these smaller measures, on these smaller exactly measures, does the government suggest uh, that needs to be done well, to deal with Airbnb? Well, as I say, on these smaller issues, whether it's vacancy or whether it's issues like the Fair Deal scheme, we're making the changes. They may only result in small numbers coming back in. I dispute Patter's figures. I, I'm not, I don't believe every Airbnb that's available could convert into a long-term rental home for, home for a family. So uh, it, it's important that we're clear. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take on uh, the issue and that we shouldn't deal with it. OK, so I, I'll just ask you again. When yeah. you say take on the issue, what specifically well, well, I, are you I, I suggesting? At this, at this point, government is talking to the stakeholders, right? The, the Department of Drafting Legislation, and they're saying that we will have action be, before the summer ter- recess and that we'll have more regulation uh, in, in the autumn recess. Uh, why do we not enforce the regulation that was currently mm. in well, place? Well, it, it, it is being enforced. I know my own ca- city, uh, Dublin City Council, they have both a rental section and uh, a planning enforcement section. Uh, but it, there isn't sufficient resources there uh, at present. And that is one of the difficulties. We continue to give local authorities jobs uh, and we don't give them the funding. Uh, uh, to, 11 to local authorities had no follow-up on this at all last year. 11. It's, it's incredible. And this was flagged when the legislation came through in the first place. And the government has been talking about it practically every year for the last three years. And you, you would imagine that the word urgency doesn't exist in terms of the housing crisis. Of course, the difference between 2019 okay. and, and now is we have a different government. Well, it, that, half the government is exactly the same government that All was right. in place. Uh, I just want to uh, just move on because earlier I spoke to uh, the travel writer, Fionn Davenport, and I began by asking him how important Airbnb is for Ireland's tourism sector. It's hugely significant, particularly in big urban places like Dublin, uh, where it has been a dominant player in the market. Um, I mean, it's the sole biggest provider of bed nights in the state for a number of years. Um, And so for that reason alone, I think Amanda Cobbles' comments today are quite significant and, dare I say, long overdue. Is Airbnb seen as being a cheaper alternative now to hotels in Ireland? I mean, yes, I suppose that um, many people see it as because there's greater options. So you can you can rent literally, you know, the the box room if you want, or you could rent a whole apartment. So really, it's not so much as that it's the cheaper option, but it's the one with the greatest amount of variety. And so as a result, um, you get a far bigger choice in price bracket. However, as it works out, because Airbnb generally operates on a dynamic pricing model, it doesn't work out to be that much cheaper than than a hotel, and particularly in recent years now, up to COVID, um, there was a lot of mid-range and budget hotels opening up in Dublin, which were taking a slice of the Airbnb market. Uh, why do owners of properties choose to use Airbnb over the more traditional rental routes? Well, I guess it's easier. There's a greater chance for profits. And so you're not locked into rental agreements. Short-term letting is managed properly is a, is a, is a hugely profitable enterprise. And until a number of years ago, went largely unregulated. And so um, landlords were able to say you could rent a, you could rent a property or a room for cheap enough in February but come the summertime is you could rent it for an astronomical fortune and so for that reason alone is is that it became a much more attractive option for landlords than long-term rent or rent, rental rather um, Lonely Planet today, uh, they issued a warning to tourists thinking about coming to uh, visit Dublin. What exactly did they have to say? 
It wasn't great, was well, it? Well, well, no. I mean, it was a list of eight things you really need to to, to prepare yourself for a visit to Dublin. And, and the media picked up on two of them, which is one is that hotel prices are exorbitant. Now, we know this and we've been talking about it in Ireland for a number of weeks. It's frighteningly high. We have TDs sleeping in cars because they can't get a hotel. We have um, basic rooms going for multiples of what any reasonable person would expect them to go for. Um, so that's a huge problem coming into the summer as, as tourism returns to Dublin after the two and a half years of COVID. The second issue was car rental. And that obviously is a national problem. And it's not, sorry, it's an international problem, but it, it's hitting us quite a lot here. Um, we had some very high profile cases on radio and in the media in recent weeks of, of American visitors who were being charged $10,000 to rent a car for a week. Um, now, that is an exaggeration in as much as that's not the kind of high prices. However, it's for a, a regular small car to get it for seven, eight, nine hundred euro a week is not uncommon. And that's 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 incredibly expensive for car rental in this country. So they're the two broad things. So basically is look, Dublin is a very expensive city to come at the best of times. It's much more expensive and you're going to struggle to find a hotel room in summer, which is not really great advertisement of the city for international tourists. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your contribution, as always, Fionn. Thanks. So, Paul, that's a pretty eminent uh, travel guide. Many people will be familiar with it. Many people will refer to it. Uh, Ireland has spent a number of years, I think, trying to build up mm. its destiny. You know, its reputation is a, is a good place for tourists to visit. We have, I think, worked hard to be seen to be more competitive than maybe we were in the, uh, the past, but you'd have to admit that reputation is now under threat. And that's why it's so important that whatever steps we take around Airbnb, that we're not reducing the supply of accommodation that might be, for example, informal B&B type accommodation, but actually what we're doing is we're tackling accommodation that's being used uh, as a, a kind of more informal or unregulated version of long-term rental. That's what we need to target if we're, go if we're going to deal with Airbnb. But the reality is, Paul, is that if you bring in these regulations, the whole idea, I presume, is to ensure that not so many properties are available on Airbnb, which means there's going to be more demand for hotel prices and those prices are going to go up, surely? Uh, of course. And, and look, you only have to look to some of the protests in Dublin City over the last few years around the call for us having communities uh, rather than locations where hotels gather. And that's, a, that's our community saying we don't want um, our cities to be places only for tourists. I'm just we wondering, how do you do we, both? Well, uh, that is, that's the you job of government. The job of government is, is to balance the both. But I'm saying to you no. here that what we want to do is take out those people who are using Airbnb for long-term rental. That has to be the, the, the impact of the intervention. You have to prioritise here. There's a housing crisis. A crisis normally happens for a short period of time. And we've had it going on for decades at the moment. The government must focus first and foremost on housing. And it's actually pushing up the cost of houses at the moment because the more rent right. that can be achieved on a monthly basis from these homes actually shoots up the investment value of the, of the property. Um, Adrian, most of the Airbnbs available are outside of Dublin, isn't that correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I put many of these points to Airbnb because that is the discussion we're having in this country about it. Mm. Now, they came back to me with some figures and they said, well, number one, the vast majority of Airbnb stays are actually outside Dublin. So mostly it's in rural areas or holiday spots. They also claim that two out of three uh, Airbnb stays are actually Irish people moving from one part of the country to another to go on holidays or for a weekend. And that's not to fully explain 
uh, the, the, the housing crisis, but it is worth noting um, that it's not primarily a Dublin or a Cork or a Limerick thing, despite the figures, uh, fairly damning figures that we have. And they did also say, Paul, that Airbnb are not responsible for the housing shortage or the housing crisis in this country. And yet they're being asked to be part of the solution or the homeowners who use Airbnb are being asked to be part but of the you solution. Can't have you can't have the president of the country calling uh, the housing situation a disaster and then not look at every corner of society mm-hmm. to try and see how we can solve it. And as I say, the issue of vacant, uh, vacant homes, the issue of fair deal and the issue of, of Airbnb, they're all small supply mm-hmm. uh, streams. But uh, to collectively, along with the public housing building programme, they will help address the problem. The, the, fa- the, the fact is you're saying that it's a very small, each one of these measures brings in a small supply. We actually don't really know that's true. Like the full figures. We don't still have the vacancy um, numbers about how many properties the Pascal Dunne hasn't released that from the, um, the, the the property register or the property tax. We still don't know that. The Airbnb, we still don't really have a proper grasp on how many of those properties. So to say that actually just some of these things are just small measures, when you actually add them all up, they could have a huge impact on the housing crisis. Yeah, I was just wondering what do you say, um, Paul and Patter, in the middle of a cost of living crisis, when people are really struggling and perhaps trying to take in other income streams and are using something like uh, Airbnb. Uh, what do you say to those people this evening? And to repeat the point I made earlier, if somebody's letting out a room in their home and it's effectively an informal B&B, that's what the platform is designed for and I don't think anybody has, has an issue with that and that will never convert into a, long, a, a long-term home, perhaps maybe for student accommodation, but it's un- unlikely to. What we want to do is tackle those people who are using it for long-term rentals mm-hmm. and are effectively doing it. Look, we've two sets of people here. One that are subject to a rent pressure zone um, and limiting the amount of money, rent they can increase. Mm-hmm. And we've got other, la- other landlords using Airbnb for longer-term rentals that don't have that same regulation. That's not fair. Should, and we have to bring a, bring a degree uh, of fairness to that. Should it apply to people who have holiday homes? Uh, well, look, I, I think it's okay for people to have uh, other properties, and it does, we saw with the uh, the vacant home tax that, we're, that I hope we will see in this in this budget once Pater, uh, Pascal uh, releases the, the fi- figures. Uh, you, you, there's a subtlety in all of this. One person's va- one person's holiday home is another person's home that they use for some, sometimes for work and sometimes not. Okay, so just, we, have to, just, we, have to, we have to build in those sort of subtleties into, into any new scheme. Uh, just very quickly, I want to get in uh, Adrian sure. because I know uh, Adrian, you're not with us for part two. Other cities mm. um, have had to tackle this uh, Airbnb uh, issue head on. What have they done and what's been successful? Well, in a number of other countries, France and the Netherlands, Portugal, one or two others, they have done something similar to this idea of a national register. There's a lot of outrage in France, there's a lot of heat in France in particular because that was at the vanguard in the early days of homes being used for Airbnb and it led to quite a significant housing crisis. The local councils there there took action. Um, So what you have seen is a a type of national register being set up typically uh, city by city, town by town, and Airbnb has complied with those with, with, with those administrative measures. And did it mean that some of those properties came back onto the traditional rental market? Uh, yeah, I, ultimately it did. Ultimately it meant that they couldn't go on to Airbnb, so they had to go through the, the proper routes to change their property if they wanted to rent it out for longer, yeah. All right, look, that's all we have time for on that particular uh, subject. My thanks to uh, Adrian Weckler for coming in this evening. Christina, Paul and Patter are going to be staying with me as we take a look at the latest COVID figures and what some ministers are hinting could be returning.
that's a subject we all hoped we had seen the back off, at least for a while, but COVID numbers are climbing and with it calls for some. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. To be done, the INMO told Virgin Media News it's time to bring back some restrictions to help with hospital overcrowding. We believe that the uh, decision to remove mandated masks indoors was done too early. We believe that that is something that now must be considered again. And we have already communicated this to the HSE, to the clinical groups, that, you know, wearing masks in crowded areas, reducing the level of protection for workers in the health service, for example, the type of mask you wear, too early. You know, there are very real reasons why masks have been shown to, to slow down transmission and that's what we need now because our hospitals are overcrowded to a level that we normally don't see in winter and it's June. Christina Finn, Paul McAuliffe and Pat Trebine are still with me and on Skype this evening I'm joined by Anthony Staines, Professor of Health Systems at DCU. Um, Professor, this particular strain, it's highly infectious, it's highly uh, contagious. Do you think mask wearing would have any impact on the transmission rates at this point? I, I think wearing masks will help. But there are other things we can do as well. And our, our own group and many public health groups across the world have called for a vaccine plus strategy. So vaccinate people and vaccine uptake is still quite low in children under 12. Ventilation, where that's possible. Air filtration, where ventilation isn't adequate, which is the case in many, many older buildings in Ireland and wearing masks in crowded indoor spaces. And we, we think that is really the, the, the future because it, it does not look as if this virus is going to go away for quite a few years yet. And you say, um, uh, Professor, uh, that this is the future. So are you talking about long-term mask wearing indefinitely? We, we don't know, is the honest answer. It, the virus will decide. 
and it will do whatever is in its interests. It's in our interests to reduce the number of cases and keep the numbers down. There are societies where mask wearing, for other reasons, has become an everyday practice and life seems to function pretty well there. We may be moving to a place where that's what we have to do as well. We have a, a new highly infectious endemic disease in our communities. And just as everyone in Africa it has to think about malaria every single day in the parts of Africa that are affected, so we, we're going to have to think about COVID every single day. And that, that's just the unfortunate reality. The good news is we which really stops the worst effects of this. And that's amazing. And the drug companies are working flat out in making better vaccines. Um, and if there are, if we can get it, then we can win. Uh, but we don't know if we can. Professor, I'm just conscious that we always spoke about sort of pressures on our hospital systems before we brought in further the restrictions. There are, at the moment, I think 600 cases in our hospital, but a lot of those are people who are in hospital for other reasons. The COVID is sort of incidental to why they are there. So is mask wearing, mandatory mask wearing, indefinitely not a disproportionate response to those figures? That's, uh, first of all, that's a political decision. So it's not a decision for public health experts, it's a decision for the minister. The second thing is we know that around, somewhere between 5% and 10% of people who get this virus have substantial long-term effects, and that's worth preventing. Uh, Professor, sorry to cut across you. I just want to try and put some of your points uh, to the panel here this evening because, Christina, um, we heard what uh, Professor Anthony Staines said there. Paul Reid was speaking about this today. We had Stephen Donnelly's comments in the Sunday Independent yesterday. Tony Cullen, I think, was talking about overcrowding in hospital. You have to wonder, are we being softened up for this? Are the powers that be, are they testing the water? Yeah, I think they are concerned, obviously, to see the hospital numbers rise. But Leo Varadkar was out there um, today speaking to reporters and this question was put to him about further restrictions, mask wearing. Um, and he was quick to point out, you know, that over half of the people, as you mentioned, in the hospital setting are presenting for other ailments, but they just happen to have COVID. And that's the situation that they're facing. He seemed to be optimistic that he didn't think the summer surge would require any new restrictions. Now, I suppose he stopped short there once we get into the winter time. So it might be the case that if, if cases were to surge, there might be some sort of recommendation, um, you know, for mask wearing and all the rest. But I think government know, given that the level of things that have opened up now, it would be a very difficult task for them to push anybody back into, I suppose, what we all remember over the last two years. I think the messaging of personal responsibility that they were pushing out over the last number of months is one that they'll probably want to hammer home a, a lot more and just, you know, that, that booster program and all the rest as well. Um, but I suppose, I think wintertime, Leo Riker did stop short there, just specifically speaking about the summer surge today. Which is obviously going to frustrate, you know, the HSC. We've heard the INMO there speaking time and time again, saying, no. look, they're coming under huge mm. pressure. Their hospital staffing levels at an all-time low. Uh, Padder, do you think there's any appetite for mask wearing again in particular settings, to be clear? Well, let, let's be honest. The reason why there is overcrowding in hospitals is because of the lack of capacity, OK? So 10 years ago, the government did a report which said there needed to be 500 ICU beds. 
Today there's 300. Um, 20 years ago there was 20,000 hospital beds in the state. Today there's 14,000. So there's been radical cutbacks which have led significantly to, to this overcrowding. The HSC at this moment are looking to close down an A&E in Navin okay. that has 20,000 patients and close five ICU beds there. So how can they say on, on, on one level that we haven't got enough capacity and at the other level close capacity? It's okay, absolutely ludicrous. The issue of mask wearing. Would you I support think, that? I think it'd be hugely disproportionate uh, at, at this stage. Yes, this is more trans, uh, transmissible, but it's not as virulent and it's not as aggressive uh, in, in reality. And actually, there's huge costs to the restrictions that we've had over the last number of years that we in a 2 have called for the government to investigate how we've handled uh, COVID. Like we, we, we talk about the cost of living. Ireland was the only country in the first quarter of 2021 that actually closed down the building of houses in the whole of the EU. Yeah, and we did have that ESRA report today looking at the level of depression among young men and young women uh, during COVID. They were absolutely stark and frightening. I'm wondering, uh, Paul McAuliffe, what is the government's position on this now? Uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. I feel uh, sorry for any senior figures being asked by journalists, is it possible that we would introduce masks? Because as Professor Stein says, the virus will decide what reaction uh, we have here. And he was right okay. also. In that, just in the it, here it, and now, given the but, but numbers Claire, that we're seeing in the numbers in hospital. what's going to happen I, 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 for the rest of the year? No, I'm well, not we, talking about the rest of the year. I'm talking about right now, yeah, no, uh, in uh, response uh, to the AMO's calls and the rising yeah, case no, numbers. I think, I think at this stage, uh, like public health medicine is a mix of, of medical science and behavioural science. At this point, there would have to be a significant increase in the figures in order for government to communicate and persuade people to change their behaviour and to, to, to use masks. And that, we're not there now? We're not there now. All right. Well, COVID isn't the only uh, worry for the government. Tonight, the three coalition leaders met to discuss what to do about the rising cost of living. The tarnished uh, Leo Varadkar says uh, the cost of living rises uh, will be reflected in the budget. That was on the basis that inflation was running at around 2 or 3%. Um, and inflation is now running uh, at around 7 or 8%. Uh, so I think it stands to reason that the um, pension increases and social welfare package uh, will have to be greater in 2023 than they were this year. Um, that's only right. Uh, the cost of living is rising um, and the economy is in good health. Uh, we've got more people at work than ever before. Um, trade is breaking all records and the public finances are in pretty good nick. Tanishta Aliyah of Radker speaking there. Christina, it sounds like it's going to be a boom time budget. Yeah, he was making quite a lot of uh, commitments there, or throwing out a lot, a lot of kites. Anyway, it's it's we're far way off from the budget, but this is probably one of the earliest times that we're discussing it, given the cost of living crisis. So he was mentioning there, pension hikes um, would be a lot bigger this year than they were last year. So won't be the fiver sort of in the budget that yeah. you know pensioners those in receipt of social welfare normally receive. Yeah. Now a lot of other groups have said that they would be looking for fifteen to twenty euro. That seems to be perhaps too far for the government to go. Um, from people that I've been speaking to and social welfare increases as well that's included in, in the package that they want childcare is going to be I think a huge pillar for the government and trying to reduce that cost one thing I think might be lacking and it's only been mentioned a few times I think by the Taoiseach is, is the rental issue I think um, you know in the last budget there was not that much done for those in the rental sector I think they're going to have to try and get the costs back um, into you know the money back into people's pocket there somehow and I think if they don't really grapple with the housing situation yes there's a lot of things here that are going to tick a lot of boxes but I think the housing issue is number one for the government and if they don't really take that to task in this budget um, you know even with the housing for all uh, aside I, I, I think 
there'll be a lot of people criticising it. He did also mention tax cuts, didn't he? Yeah, so the, this is the, the extra tax ban, 30%, putting more money into the squeezed middle. So it, it is seemed like a bit of a, a windfall perhaps for some people, but the problem is, I think, in the last budget where there was kind of little bits for everybody, but it doesn't go a long way, particularly with the inflation that we're talking about, like 7 or 8% could be going higher, fuel costs through the roof, you know, people really are looking for action now. The government, you know, continually tell reporters that, um, you know, what they did in the last um, couple of months, all that two billion package. Yes, a lot of money, but a lot of that's been gobbled up now at this point. So, you know, Micheál Martin was quick to sort of dampen that um, that that line from oh, Leo right. Radker that stuff might be done in the interim. Seems to be that they want to hold out till October. Um, Paul, what is the government's thinking then for October? Because if a budget, I think Leo also said, needs to be anti-inflationary, um, how can they introduce all of these measures? And I think that, that is one of the issues uh, that that government has to, to grapple, that idea of dealing with this wave of inflation and not creating a secondary or tertiary uh, wave, wave of inflation. We saw that happen in the 70s and we absolutely don't want it to happen again. I think there's a number of ways we can do it and I think the government has indicated uh, the kind of direction that, certainly from Fianna Fáil's perspective, we could be reducing the cost of living by the charges that the state pays. So the reduction in the uh, transport costs, the reduction uh, that we, we put in terms of of children accessing uh, hospitals, all of those things, and other charges that go the government charge can be re can be reduced. And, and would you be in support of those tax cuts too? Uh, well, look, uh, from my perspective, uh, and there's a clear difference I think here between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Uh, our emphasis is not on on widespread tax cuts. Our emphasis is on public services and on tackling those um, who are who are most in need, because that's the responsible thing to do. And, and in, in in my mind, that 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 is what the issues I'll be pushing when we have our our uh, our meeting in early July. All right, very briefly, uh, yeah, Padder, I, I no mention of anything before October, though. I, I just think it's, it, they're still talking in the future tense and people want action now. And if you look at fuel, the government are taking more money in today on fuel taxes than there were before the cost of living crisis hits. It's 40 cents in excise, 35 cents in VAT, and 10 cents on, on, on uh, carbon taxes. They right. could reduce those now. All right, we're going to have to leave it there, but my thanks to all of my uh, panel for coming in this evening. Up next, we're going to be talking to the Irish journalist who has spent the last few years at the forefront of one of the world's biggest crises, and she has written movingly about her experiences. You don't want to miss it. Well, today is World Refugee Day and it is being marked by a depressing reality. That is because a number of people forced to flee conflict, violence, human rights violations and persecution has now crossed the staggering milestone of 100 million for the very first time. And while it isn't being seen as much on your TV screens, migrants are still risking the extraordinarily dangerous journey across the Mediterranean. This was the scene off Libya just a few days ago. 300 people packed onto a tiny boat were rescued by a non-profit rescue ship. Well, journalist uh, Sally Hayden has been highlighting this issue again and again, seeing the most horrendous of scenes and documenting them for the world. And she has written about it in a book, My Fourth Time, We Drowns. It's an incredible read and she joins me now here in studio. Uh, Sally, you're very welcome to the programme. Can you sum up 
the experience of some of those human beings who are fleeing countries in Africa and seeking refuge in the EU? Is it possible to sum up what they're experiencing? Yeah, I mean, um, there are many different situations that people are fleeing from wars, dictatorships, um, situations that I'm sure people don't hear about in the news often. I think uh, in Europe, we're used to just not paying attention to a lot of these crises. But the the bigger um, or the big thing that is happening now is because it's it's being made so difficult for them to actually reach a safe country. You have kind of like a secondary crisis that is the treatment of people as they try to get to a safe place. And so that's what I've been focused on, what is happening in the central Mediterranean, which is designated by the UN or has been called by the UN the deadliest migration route in the world, um, and the kind of human rights abuses and just general horror that is happening to people who try to seek safety, who try to reach Europe across this route. Have you witnessed that horror that you talk about firsthand? Or have you heard first accounts of it? I mean, I've reported in a lot of countries that refugees come from, for example, Sudan, um, Somalia, uh, Syria, Iraq, like various other places. But also um, what my book has been documenting is what is happening to refugees and migrants who get intercepted at sea trying to cross into Europe. So basically what's happening is people leave uh, Libya on boats, we've all seen the, you know, the pictures of the flimsy boats, try and reach uh, Europe, uh, try and reach Italy. But since 2017, the EU has been both uh, conducting surveillance, flying planes and helicopters, and more recently drones, and also funding the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept the boats mm. of people trying to cross. And so since 2017, we've now had almost 100,000 men, women and children that have been intercepted, forced back to Libya and generally locked up in detention centres that have been compared to by Pope Francis, among others, as concentration camps. And so uh, what my reporting has focused on is what is happening inside those detention centres. And for me, I see this as you know, a, an important documentation of the consequences of our policies because people think that we're not involved in this, you know, that these are situations that are happening far away that aren't related to us. But actually, what I wanted to show was that it is European policy that is creating, um, you know, extreme an extreme human rights crisis. That drives people back and forces them to live in these uh, detention centres in, in Libya, uh, you mentioned. What are the conditions like there? I mean, I think every type of abuse you can imagine is happening, like rape, uh, starvation, medical neglect, um, forced labour, uh, you know, detention centres have been bombed, people have been killed with bullets. Um, I, I, more recently, the ICC prosecutor, among others, has said there's evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity that are being carried out. And yeah, so for me, I mean, I thought that, that was, it was important to document that. And what happened was that there were people with hidden phones inside the detention centres. They first contacted me in August 2018. Um, and at that point, I actually started posting some of the screenshots of the messages on Twitter because they were saying, you know, we're desperate for help, we need help. And I started posting this online because I thought, you know, if people know about this, they're not going to let it keep happening. And actually what happened was my phone number and my details were passed around many more detention centres. It turned out it was a much bigger um, issue than I had 
I, then I had appreciated. And for years after that, I ended up just gathering all this evidence of the abuses that were going on. What do you make, I suppose, of the attitude within the EU to uh, those refugees who come across the Mediterranean? I mean, I think that what has happened with Ukraine, I mean, obviously the war in Ukraine is horrific, but all of this time we've been told that a more empathetic policy is impossible, that the general public don't care enough to to have sympathy towards people who are fleeing, you know, conflicts in Africa. And I mean, we've seen similar things with people fleeing conflicts in the Middle East as well. But what the response to Ukrainians has shown us is that it is possible. It just wasn't possible for those people. And what I'm hearing from politicians is they, they won't do anything because they believe that the general public don't care, that they don't have this sympathy. And so for me, that's why I wanted to write this book. I wanted to make sure that actually at least nobody can say that they don't know this is happening, because I'd like to think that if, you know, if Irish people knew that this was happening in their name, that they are, we are behind these policies as well, that they wouldn't want as a them member to of continue. The EU. Exactly. Um, I think we all remember you know, that picture of Alan Kurdi, that Syrian uh, two-year-old uh, toddler, that horrific, horrific picture of his body washed up um, just off Turkey. And, and it did make people stop and think and, and feel perhaps guilt or feel some sense of responsibility for these people. Um, it was hoped, I think, that it was a watershed moment, that it would be a turning point, was it? No, I mean, the crisis continues. More than 20,000 people have drowned in the Mediterranean since 2014. Um, and yeah, people now, I mean, we, we might not be seeing those pictures. We might not be hearing the voice, their voices. Is that because we're not looking or is that because they're being pushed away from even reaching our borders in the first place? I think it's a bit of both, but I hope that people will, will begin to pay attention to it and yeah, not to be a plugger of the book, but it's called My Fourth Time We Drowned. The evidence is all in there. Why do you think there has been such a different attitude to those fleeing the war in Ukraine? Uh, I mean, I, th I think it's... I don't want to say racism, but I think that racism probably does play a role. But I also think that there have been concerted efforts to kind of silence which voices that were, which voices we're hearing. Um, and for me, when I was reporting on this, I quite quickly came under a lot of pressure. For example, I received death threats. I was put under criminal investigation. That really showed me that this is actually something that is being covered up and is being hidden. And I wonder if people really appreciate how bad it is like, and, and the role that we're playing in that. And that's why I think, I don't know, maybe they would have more empathy if they knew that. Like, I'd like to believe that. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of things are also political, aren't they? Um, you have written extensively uh, about Libya, but you don't feel safe to travel there yourself. Is that still the case? Yeah, that's still the case. Why is that? Uh, just because I received some security. I, had, I have had some security warnings, but I've traveled to Sudan. Um, I've actually flown off the Libyan coast about 10 miles off it. I've been in a refugee rescue boat off the Libyan coast as well. Um, I've been to Tunisia, so I've kind of circled it a lot, but I haven't been uh, there specifically. Uh, the, the problems are clearly manifold, uh, Sally, and, and your book certainly gives voice to that. The solutions to all of this are much harder to find. What are they? I mean, I think that the more that you make something... Um, I mean, we see this everywhere. Like, so 
so Europe is basically fortifying its borders as much as it possibly can, but you still have people who need help and who need assistance. And so they're going to keep trying to find different routes, but they get more and more exploited, more and more oppressed. And at the same stage, uh, the EU, and now we see with the UK-Rwanda deal, um, the UK as well, are spending huge amounts of money, and the US even, like most of the rich world, are spending huge amounts of money to, um, to fortify borders in ways that is or that seems to be from my reporting, propping up dictatorships, propping up militias, you know, propping up systems that are actually oppressing people further. And I think that, you know, I'm a journalist, so it's not my role to say exactly what should or shouldn't be done, but I think that the amount of money that is being spent, like the EU is spending billions of dollars or billions of euro now in across Africa to stop migration. There needs to be more analysis and more scrutiny of where that's being spent. Sally Hayden, it's a wonderful book. It gives voice to the voiceless. I think that's what you always intended to do. Thank you so much for coming into us this evening. That's it from us here on The Tonight Show. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can also now find us on Instagram, Tonight TV. But from all of the late team here, good night and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.